It was just so vicious. It was like a stadium event. It's a long, sad story. These were ritualistic reminders of whose lives were valued and whose were not. These voices are from a documentary film about lynching in the American South. The film is gaining attention on the festival and museum circuit, but it will also soon make its way to schools. Nearly 500,000 teachers will have access to the film as part of a new initiative to transform the teaching of slavery and its legacies. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we talk with the directors of the film An Outrage about their journey through the South and its painful history. Later in the show, an appreciation of African-American writer Ernest Gaines, who wrote, among other works, A Lesson Before Dying. But first, beginning with the end of the Civil War and well into the middle of the 20th century, the extra-legal and socially sanctioned practice of lynching claimed the lives of nearly 4,000 African-American men, women, and children. Hannah Ayers and Lance Warren are directors of a recent documentary about lynching and its effects on families. The film is called An Outrage. You know, lynching is so gruesome and shameful. Your film about it is actually hard to watch for that very reason. There are instances of lynching that you portray that shocked me time and again. Well, I'm glad to hear that, frankly, because... That shock, that sense of surprise, is in many ways what got us into this project. Uh, We had been doing a lot of work with history teachers over the last few years before we made this. As a part of that, we got to hear a great many lectures by historians. And we kept hearing through those lectures bits and pieces about the history of lynching, of which we were were unaware. Uh, We had both studied history in college and graduate school, but we realized that we only knew this history in broad strokes. Around that same time, the Equal Justice Initiative released their report documenting more lynchings than had ever been documented previously. A lot was made about the numbers, but not the stories behind those numbers. From uh, the time after the Civil War until the middle of the 20th century, uh, some 4,000 women, men, young and old people were lynched, which is to say that they were killed outside of the legal system and with social sanction. Nobody was charged or punished for these killings. And these people were black and white, but predominantly black. That's true. Yes, predominantly black. Um, Lynching was a form of racial terror. There are many different reasons that white people gave to justify why they lynched an individual. Some of those reasons included um, sexual assault or rape, breaching of social norms. Um, There's also a great fear of black male sexuality. And so there were often accusations of rape or sexual assault. In nearly all cases, there was not proof of these crimes and um, there was no trial or carriage of justice. About 20 years before the start of this period, there were race riots in New York, not the South, where the white Irish had attacked and, in some cases, lynched African-Americans competing over jobs. That's right. These were the first lynchings, that is, widespread killings of black people by white people uh, that were not prosecuted and indeed were were encouraged. Um, This History goes very deep into the Civil War, a time when the nation uh, was not anything close to being reconstructed. Let me talk about some of the impressions I had as I looked at instances of lynching covered in the film. I was stunned to see sometimes a mob would react and kill an African-American person for really nothing. So there was one fellow who was killed after he had asked an elderly white woman for help with his overheated car engine. Yes. The the justifications for lynchings were often very minor offenses. One of the sites that we visit in the film is Lake City, South Carolina, where a man named Fraser Baker was lynched because he was a successful postmaster brought in by the president of the United States to take this new post in Lake City. And the white community didn't approve of that. And so they, they... threatened him and his family. And when he refused to leave, they set his home on fire and and shot him and uh, his infant daughter. There's another case that you mentioned where a man was lynched because he wanted to vote. 
That's right. That That's one of the newspaper clippings that we see. And indeed, we see a lot of newspaper clippings from the black press, the African-American press, which really was the center of resistance to lynching. Some of the most resonant voices writing against, speaking against, organizing against lynching were coming from black journalists. And who was doing the lynching? You can see in some of these newspaper clippings that often the white society is shocked by them, mm-hmm. that this is an outlier group in most cases, and yet lynchings were pervasive. That's right. When Hannah and I started this project, we were aware of really just the broad strokes of this history. And I think to the extent that anyone has an impression of lynching, it might be somewhat similar, namely that this was hanging, done by the KKK, perhaps in backwoods areas. And it was that, but it was much more than redneck mobs in the KKK. It was done in town squares as well as in backwoods areas. It was done before crowds of 5, 10, 20,000 people in Texas at one point. And it was also done on back roads in complete silence and complete invisibility. It was celebrated. It was seldom prosecuted. Do you have the impression from your studies that it was often instigated by the same people in one county or state or community and that in a place where it happened time and again, it was usually the same group? I think one challenge of resurrecting this history is that the perpetrators have not been identified. In many communities, I think there was an understanding of who was likely involved. But because there were no trials, because there was no carriage of justice, then the perpetrators never had to show their face. The, the names were not identified publicly in, in newspapers, in media, in, in public circles. There was one story that you portrayed where the sheriff in town said 50 people had dragged the suspect out of the jail cell and then lynched him, but he couldn't identify who they were. Was it often the case that they could identify, but even themselves were afraid or complicit? We, we do see that time and again where law enforcement itself is part of the community that is lynching. They are assisting in the lynching. They are allowing it. We see time and again that a black person who's accused of a crime is maybe put in jail. And sometimes that is for that person's protection. But uh, time and again, a mob manages to break into the jail. And sometimes that may have been by force, and sometimes that may have been because the sheriff opened the door for them. This was done with wide complicity. It didn't require membership in, say, a white supremacist organization in a town to find yourself in a band of lynchers. We interviewed a woman named uh, Faustina Baker, who is a descendant of Fraser Baker, the postmaster who was killed along with his infant daughter, Julia, in Lake City, South Carolina. When she came and attended the premiere of this film at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, and she stood and was recognized by the audience, she stood there also as a symbol, as a representation, as a witness to racial violence. This is something that even today, uh, many decades into her life, this is something that moves her to tears that her family, her ancestors, were thought to be so dispensable. Another woman you spoke with, Thelma Dangerfield from Lamar County, Texas. Her ancestors had been enslaved there, and she and her brothers had grown up and left the area. She'd retired there in the 90s and had started to research lynchings in that area, and she was so dismayed at the realization of how much entrenched hate there is. And she's not optimistic about today finding ways to melt the hearts of people who just think this is okay. She says, you can take down monuments, you can put up plaques, but nothing's going to change, she, she argues, until you clean the heart out. It was such a long period where this was going on in America. What do you think brought it to a close in the 60s? In a phrase, black people, black people ended lynching. Mamie Till, the mother of Emmett Till, her insistence on having an open casket at her son's funeral, on insisting that the gory pictures of his brutalized body were published nationally, that 
is what began the end of lynching. It was people protesting throughout the, the sort of heroic phase of the civil rights movement that we think about in the mid-20th century. But it was the decades of resistance, the decades of speaking up, the century of black journalism preceding the publication of the Emmett Till photos, all of that building to this point where African Americans made it so that the nation, the white part of the United States, could not look away from these crimes any longer. The film is also fairly short, and mm -hmm. I think it's your intention to show it to high school audiences. That's right. From the beginning, we were interested in connecting with students. Middle and high school history teachers in particular have a great deal to do with what we remember about the past. Whatever we have learned about a particular historical topic by, say, 8th, ninth grade, that may be the last, if not the only time, that we learn about that topic in a formal academic setting. And so we set a, an initial goal that we set for this film was, if there is a day in the curriculum when lynching is discussed, we want this film to be shown on that day. We understand that what students learn at a young impressionable age can powerfully shape how they become thinkers and parents later in life. Hannah Ayers and Lance Warren are directors of An Outrage, Lynching in the American South. Coming up next, an appreciation for author Ernest Gaines. A Lesson Before Dying by Ernest Gaines is based loosely on the true story of Willie Francis, a young black man sentenced wrongly to death by electric chair back in the 1940s. Ernest Gaines grew up poor, he lived in slave quarters with 10 brothers and sisters on a former Louisiana plantation. Keith Clark is writing a book about Gaines. Clark is a professor of English and African-American studies at George Mason University. We spoke with him from our Charlottesville studio last year, shortly after the August 2017 white supremacist rally there. Keith, you're under contract for a new book on the great Louisiana writer and living legend Ernest Gaines. What do you love about his work, and what do you want to make sure we understand? What I love about Ernest Gaines is that he has taken and rendered artistically the voices of southern, rural Louisiana people, primarily black people, but not solely black people, and he has taken those people's lives, and he has transform them into these marvelous stories and tapestries that really fill a gap in terms of what we know about our history as Americans, what we know about our history as Southerners, what we know about our racial history, not romanticizing any of them, but just being true to his own experience growing up and telling our collective experience. And what about the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman? That became a popular TV film. Right, that's right. And so I, you know, as a kid growing up in, in Norfolk, Virginia, so I wasn't from the, the deep south like Mr. Gaines, but as Malcolm X said, anywhere below Canada is the south, right? So, <laughs> so I'm in Virginia, and in 1974, I'm 11 years old. There on television was this CBS TV movie, and so you really didn't see African-Americans on TV. And certainly you didn't see African-Americans in a serious or complicated light on television. You, you, know, you might have somebody like a, a Bill Cosby or you know, Flip Wilson comedy. But here is Cicely Tyson in this drama, this historical drama about a woman who was 110 years old and who was recounting her life from slavery. Miss Jane Pittman was not an actual woman, but she's the narrator of this story that chronicles her life as a slave until her, her death. And it was that movie that really began this intense focus on African-American history, exploring it in the public eye. Absolutely. You know, I, um, I cherish Toni Morrison, and her novel Beloved is really sort of credited for stimulating popular interests in memory, slavery, the past, the horrors of the Middle Passage, you know, all of these things. But writers like Ernest Gaines and um, even before him, a Mississippi writer named Margaret Walker wrote a novel called Jubilee, which also focuses on slavery. And so these historical novels were really antecedents to things like Beloved and really charted the way for Toni Morrison um, and other writers of, of what's now called neo-slave novels. But, you know, 
Gaines and Margaret Walker, these were the writers who really started that trend, and they really deserve some credit. Among his other works, of course, is A Lesson Before Dying, which won many, many accolades. Yes. A Lesson Before Dying takes up issues about the law. It takes up issues about imprisonment. It takes up issues about race and class. It takes up issues about education. You know, Gaines always makes it clear. He says, I'm not political. I'm a storyteller. He took a lot of criticism in the 60s because people felt like his voice wasn't um, protesting loud enough. You know, his, his work is much more, as he likes to say, understated, but they're powerful um, examinations of not just issues, but also people and their complex and, and people in their full complexity. This book was so moving. Oprah Winfrey had picked it for her book club. That's it right. Was Weeks and weeks, the New York Times bestseller. Yeah, this was, um, you know, came out. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant, and the novel was made into a film, which I believe was made in 99 for HBO. So interesting how influential the woman who raised him is in all of his writings. Yes. You know, Ernest Gaines says the woman who had the most influence on me, not just as a writer, but as a man, was my aunt, and he always said Mrs. Augustine Jefferson. He was one of 12. He was one of 12. That's right. He said that he saw this woman care for children, wash clothes, garden, cook. And he said she did it never, ever complaining. People would come to gather at his aunt's house because she couldn't walk. So people in the community would gather at her house and come into the house or on the porch and they want to contact their relatives, but they were illiterate. And he would actually dictate their letters. They would say, well, say something about the garden. And he's like, (laughs) okay. And he would just fill it in. And so he was filling in those gaps. He, too, as an artist, would fill in the gaps. He said he didn't see those rural Southern blacks in books. He says when Southern writers tried to write them, they either uh, portrayed them in very um, demeaning ways. They were either stereotypes or victims. And he said, you know, these are not the people that I knew. These were not the strong people that I grew up with. So I'm going to populate the shelves with the books that aren't there. Do you have an excerpt of some of his writing that you could share with us? Always. Um, (laughs) So um, this is Gaines's um, fifth novel, A Gathering of Old Men. And initially he had titled it The Revenge of the Old Men. And uh, this was made into a film in um, 87. And this book is really near and dear to me because this was the first novel I'd ever read by Ernest Gaines. The old men in the title are all African-American men who live in this rural Louisiana town. And there's been the murder of um, a white Cajun. And now the sheriff has come to find out, well, who done it? It's either I'm going to find out who did it or this man's family is going to come in and do as they've done in the past. They're going to ride through and they're going to, you know, there could, could be a bloodbath. And so these old men have a history of um, not responding to racial violence out of fear Um, that they will be killed, that their families will be killed, their livelihood could be taken away. And so if you can picture this, they're on this porch, they're all these old men, they've got these shotguns, there's the sheriff. Gable has just finished telling his story, so I'll start here. Mapes, the sheriff is named Mapes. Mapes, he started moving the candy around in his mouth again. I shot him, Coot said. So did my grandson, Mapes said. I was the only man from this parish ever fit with the 369th, Coot said. He didn't even look at Mapes. He was over by the garden fence looking down the quarters toward the fields. The 369th was an all-colored outfit. You couldn't fight side by side with these here white folks then. You had to get your training in France, take orders from French officers. They trained us good, and we held our ground. Boyhauser, Minicourt, Champagne, we held our ground. We got decorated, kissed on the jaw, all that. And I was proud as I could be till I got back home. The first white man I met, the very first one, one of them New English-speaking things off that river told me I better not ever wear that uniform or that medal again, no matter how long I live. He told me I was back home now, and they didn't cotton to no nigger wearing medals for killing white folks. That was back in World War I, and they ain't changed yet, not a bit. 
Look what happened to Kurt's boy when he come home from World War II. Because they seen him with that German girl's picture, they caught him, and y'all remember what they did with him with that knife? Korea, same thing. That colored boy had thrown his body on that grenade to protect his platoon. Still, the politicians here wouldn't let them bury him in Arlington like they did the rest of them was buried there. Vietnam, the same thing. It ain't changed, not at all. What a powerful way to set it against the backdrop of service to country yes. and then coming to this place where laws don't apply. Absolutely, absolutely. Even giving your life for your country in a country that is so so rigidly rooted and practices of discrimination and, de- and and separation and segregation. And in Louisiana, the rigid, violent Jim Crow regime, that those places are not willing to acknowledge full black humanity, no matter what you do, that your skin color, not your place of birth, not your declaration of love and loyalty, not giving your life for this country, It must have been an amazing moment for you when you were able to interview Ernest Gaines in person at his home in Louisiana. Oh, absolutely. That was a really memorable experience. Uh, My editor there had arranged for me to interview him at his home. So he and his wife actually built a home on the land that was a plantation where he was reared, maybe 30 or 40 minutes from Baton Rouge. And, you know, this was in the morning, and so she opens the gate and she lets me in, and lo and behold, the first sight I see is Mr. Gaines in the kitchen, sitting down, eating his muffin and drinking coffee. So here's this icon, you know, in this very sort of just everyday situation, and I, you know, I tried to not have my mouth agape, and we had a a wonderful, probably about a three-hour discussion um, about his work, and um, and afterwards, he and his uh, his wife and I went and we got lunch and um, we had a few drinks. I had I, I had brought Mr. Gaines a bottle of bourbon. I knew he liked bourbon, and so we had a few drinks and talked some more. And it was it was a wonderful time. Actually, it was it, that interview. Actually, is going to be included in my uh, in my book. What do you want students in high school and college to get from Ernest Gaines? I want them to get from Ernest Gaines a part of the American experience that too often we choose not to remember, we choose to misremember, you know, and and I have to say, you know, being here in Charlottesville in, in 2017, given some of the things that have gone on here this summer, I mean, this has been a long, hot summer, I'm sad to say, um, in terms of race. I mean, the studio is just a few blocks from where there was a white supremacist rally over Confederate, superficially over Confederate monuments, but of course over much more than that, over change in demographics, um, over a lot of things. And so um, this is a history and an issue that we're still reckoning with. And so I want people, students, adults, you know, children, white, black, Latino, Latina, Native American, Asian American, what I want them to get from Ernest Gaines is that the history of our country is a history that is really, it's a tough history, it's a violent history, but it's a history that we have to claim, we have to revisit, and we have to face. And in doing that work, we can move to that better place that we always strive to be, that, 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 you know, that perfect union. As James Baldwin used to say, these yet to be United States. If we can look at his work and see how it speaks to us as much now as it did when he published it. And there's a lot we can gain from, from that in terms of understanding not just our history, not just our past, but ourselves and our present. And it speaks to us on specific levels in terms of race, but it also speaks to us in levels that are human. You know, one of the things Gaines said was that. I, you know, I write about race, but I just, I, but I write about humanity. You know, at one point he even said, I don't conceptualize race. I'm conceptualizing people. That's why his works have been translated into almost 30 languages. This is why he's really a, an international and global icon, because these works are specific, but they're also global. They're also existential. I want people to read this work and to understand 
that we can learn about ourselves, that it holds the key to us having a greater understanding, not just of our past, not just of our present, but where we're going. It's all there. It's all there. Keith Clark is a professor of English and African-American studies at George Mason University. He's also a former fellow at Virginia Humanities. We leave you now with reflections by Charlottesville residents on the events of August 12th and their aftermath. They were recorded at Dialogues on Race and Inequality held at the University of Virginia. It was a very traumatizing event just to know that where I go to school, this is happening. I've never been afraid to like talk about race relations, which has always been a hard topic to talk about in this country. Seeing that event, of course it was traumatizing, but it did not surprise me because I knew racism was here all along. Been here for a long time. It's ingrained in this country's history. I found myself for several weeks afterwards you know, somebody in normal conversation or even a friend or family member from outside the community on the phone saying, hey, you know, how you doing? I couldn't answer that question like I normally do. That question caught in my throat every single time. I did not know how to answer that. It was, it was scary. It was scary to see that demonstration, what was going on in Charlottesville on the 12th, happening in this day and age. To see so much hate I think it was just uh, this constant feeling of something terrible is going to happen and just waiting for that terrible thing to happen and not knowing where it's coming from and a real sense of fear. I really felt very guilty. I, I, I felt like I should have been there. I haven't worked that out, you know, that, um, you know, I'm somebody who has very strong beliefs in what this country can be and should be. I'm also a person of faith. I have to ask myself, did not your beliefs, spiritual and political, call you to be there. We must not be intolerant of views that are different from our own, lest we become the intolerance we're trying to, to stand up against. The challenge for us is to continue to support free speech and, and assembly, and at the same time be, be vigilant and prepared uh, to take action if it turns out to be something other than that. Things are gonna get better, but it's gonna take that talk that nationwide talk that we need to have about our past in this country and speak the truth. And honestly, I can speak honestly, I think it's a conversation that white people need to start. I've noticed a change, but what I see is selective outrage. Maybe it's a wonderful starting point for people to begin to have a new level of empathy. But what we saw on the 11th and 12th uh, happens in different forms all the time. For many of us who are black and part of underserved and marginalized communities, we were not at all surprised. So part of the conversation has to do with dealing with the surprise of surprise. I think the 11th and 12th had a greater impact on our white brothers and sisters than it did the rest of us. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Our next segment comes to us from With Good Reason associate producer Kelly Libby. A warning, it includes descriptions that may disturb some listeners. You've probably seen the photo, the one that captures a gray Dodge Charger plowing into a crowd of anti-racist protesters in Charlottesville. Bodies are being flung into the air and onto the street. One person, Heather Heyer, was killed. For many Americans, August 12th marks a shift in the national conversation about white supremacy and racism. For the people who were injured in the attack, the 12th marks day one of a long, painful process of recovery. This is Lisa's story. For privacy reasons, we're withholding her last name. He hit me, and I didn't know it at first until seeing the video. When he hit me and those other people, we were flung up into the air. And I'm totally upside down in some of the... And I've seen a photograph where there's a lot of people in the air, and my legs are visible in the left side of the frame just sticking straight up in the air. And um, somehow, when he hit me, I was thrown, I guess, up into the air, upside down, and across the car that he hit. 
and I went across that silver car and landed on their hood. When we spoke with Lisa, she was in a rehabilitation facility outside Charlottesville. She's not from Charlottesville. She came down from Northern Virginia, where she'd been following updates on anti-racist efforts leading up to the rally. When I first heard about it, I didn't actually know that it was going to be a crazy event. All I heard is that my friend was doing an anti-racist action and I wanted to support her. And as time grew closer, I became more and more nervous because more details were being shared with me about how dangerous the Nazis are. I came to Charlottesville the morning of the march with uh, three other people, and um, we arrived somewhere around, I think it must have been 7 or 8 a.m., and we uh, parked in Charlottesville and walked up to uh, Emancipation Park. Emancipation Park was until recently called Lee Park, as in Confederate General Robert E. Lee, whose likeness was made into a statue and dedicated in the park in 1924 at the height of Jim Crow laws and lynchings of black people. The Lee statue, which is slated for removal by the city, was a rallying point for white supremacists who came to Charlottesville on August 11th and 12th from all over America. Lisa says she knew the probability of violence that day was high. They were walking around with, um, you know, assault rifles. They were wearing military uniforms, which was also confusing because unless you are able to identify military uniforms and look at the badges, you're not sure if they're law enforcement or the Nazis or white supremacists. So that was very unnerving. Um, I come from a place where there's a lot of guns, you know, growing up it was nothing to see a truck drive by with a gun rack in the back. So guns aren't as scary to me as they are to a lot of people, but um, when you know what these people are like, the white supremacists and such, and you see them with automatic, they want to have an excuse to use those weapons. Uh, I believe very strongly in our Second Amendment right. I don't want any of that to be eroded, uh, and I just, and I don't, I don't, I think that in that particular situation, the problem is that they are people looking for an excuse to shoot someone. Um, there's a look, there's a look in their eyes, there's a look of, there's a look of anger and there's a look of, of violence about them that, you know, you, you see them, they're not just, see, the, 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 the other side of it, the anti, the anti, the counter protesters. We are outraged. Outrage is different from violence. Violence is they're looking to harm someone. There was violence that morning. There were sticks and fists thrown and a gun fired, blood and pepper spray and shouting. Then eventually an order from police that the crowds disperse. Lisa says around noon after the order, she and other counter-protesters marched back to Emancipation Park, where they had a permit to assemble. And we were having food, and we were, you know, saying hello to each other. Like, you know, finally the medics were able to sit down and ch chat with us. They had been busy all day tending to people's needs, washing pepper spray out of their eyes, and... Um, so we were back in that park and everything was going really well and then we got an announcement that a low-income housing area was being targeted by the white supremacists. Lisa says at this point, she and other counter-protesters decided to cross town and defend the people of Friendship Court. When they arrived, she said, residents told them they had defused the situation and that they should move on, that they didn't want an escalation in front of their homes. So Lisa and the people she was with began marching back. So then we continued marching down uh, another street and we ended up on uh, Water Street. And when we were arriving on Water Street, we saw others of our group, our counter-protesters, coming down Water Street. So we were really happy to be reunited. Uh, we were all waving and cheering with each other. And um, we marched on Water Street and then turned left on 4th again and started up 4th. And then there was a commotion. And the thing is, there had been commotions all throughout the day. And I never saw what was going on because there were always people between me and the commotion. 
so at this point, I heard a commotion, and I started thinking, oh, I wonder what's going on. Then I heard screaming, and I started to think, that sounds different. Then I heard a noise, like this. And later I realized that was him hitting bodies. And when he hit me, I did not know that I was hit by a cart for, you know, because it happened so fast I hadn't processed it. It felt like I had been whipped up into a tornado. I had no control over my body. Everything was spinning. And then I came down on that silver car driven by the two women who saved a lot of lives by being there. So I landed on the silver car, and in that car there were two African-American women who had been trying to get to work. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but in you know days since the attack, I found out that um, they said that they felt God had guided them there to protect us. Uh, when they first arrived on the street, they, saw, they said they saw an ocean of white faces, and they were scared because they thought we were the white supremacists, and then they heard us saying, Black Lives Matter. And when I heard that story, I started crying. I can't imagine what that must have been like for them. I can only imagine. Uh, when I first landed on the ground, I looked up and I saw a drone. And thankfully, people held a tarp over me and protected me from the drone. Uh, they, also, they were protecting me from the sun, but it also protected me from the drone. Don't know what side that drone was from. I didn't want to be recorded. And um, that, that I remember looking at the people holding the tarp over me, and oh, I was just, they just looked so strong. They, 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 they were wonderful. I remember my good friend now, who I met at that moment. Her name is Tracy, and she's a pediatrician. She was there that day to sing peace songs. And she had a guitar with her, and she was with some friends. When the attack occurred, she and her friends were around the corner. And one of her friends said, Oh, my God, we've got to go, Tracy. It's really bad. We've got to run. We've got to run. And Tracy said, I can't run. She started to, and then she said, I have to go see if somebody needs me. And she arrived, and she knelt down, and she identified herself and asked my name, and who to contact for me, and she was my protector. She just guarded over me until my husband arrived. Yeah. I've been personally thanked by a lot of people from the community here, um, medical care professionals and um, other people who I came in contact with through this whole process have very, very sincerely thanked me. I've cried many times with people thanking me, and I kind of felt like I didn't deserve thanks. All I did was come down this one day and I got hit by a car. What we should do is white people should do everything they possibly can to uh, stand up against racism. Uh, I think that anybody who believes that they are not racist themselves needs to do something about it because uh, we cannot surrender our country any longer to these people who have been, you know, keeping their thumb down on black people all this time. Lisa suffered blunt force trauma to her abdomen. She has four broken bones in her left hand, and both legs are broken. A year has passed, and earlier this summer, the Justice Department charged James Alex Fields Jr., who hit Lisa and killed Heather Heyer, with multiple hate crime counts. Lisa's broken leg is doing well, but her hand may never recover. In the aftermath of August 12th, the Columbia Journalism Review convened a panel of journalists in Charlottesville for a discussion on race, racism, and the media. The panel featured six journalists from both local and national outlets. In the following excerpt, Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie, kicks things off in conversation with moderator Brendan Fitzgerald about false equivalency. 
to me, there seemed to be a deliberate distancing of saying that these are bad people and we are not bad people. Um, we have no connection to them. They do not in any sort of way connect back to political choices that are mainstream. And the conversation seemed to be too easy. And so there was, in my eyes, the spectacle of lawmakers uh, making these various sort of definitive condemnations of white supremacy. And these same lawmakers uh, were utterly silent on, uh, say, the, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, were utterly silent on um, police violence against African Americans. And there's no dots being connected between these things and this particular thing. I mean, I, w I wonder, Jamal, your thoughts about should we say the same of journalists that commit errors like um, perpetuating false equivalencies that the president errs in which he equates uh, white supremacists with those people in our community who show up to protest their presence here? So I think journalism, by and large, has done a decent enough job not making those kinds of false equivalencies, in part because journalism is an industry made up of a lot of well-meaning white people. Where I think journalism is having a tougher time is in clearly labeling things for what they are and, and sort of outright saying um, what is before us. And so I think a great example of this, and I'm sure everyone here has now heard of this, is when Jamel Hill at ESPN on Twitter called the president a white supremacist. And the reaction from ESPN was like, whoa, whoa, whoa we don't know her. Um, <laughs> and implicit in the storm around it is the idea that it's somehow not objective, it's not fair, it's not, um, it's, it's not factual to re refer to the President of the United States as a white supremacist. But I think there's a case for that being a completely factual objective claim, and the problem with the claim is, isn't that it doesn't have a factual basis um, that can't be argued or discussed or reported. The problem with the claim, as far as I can see it, is that it mostly just offended white people. Um, a lot of white people were offended by the designation. They were offended by the implication um, uh, that comes with labeling the president a white supremacist and pushed against it. And I, I see that. I see that pushing against the implication in all sorts of journalism about the present moment. I see it in the kind of genre of reporting about Trump voters. I see it in how the, the labeling of any segment of American voters as racist or motivated by racism, a, a pushing against that narrative of saying that's not fair, you can't judge people like that, you can't, uh, you can't deny them their nuance. For my part, at a certain point we have to take the actions of groups of people, of voters, of politicians, and, and apply to them the labels that fit. Um, and I see a, a reluctance around that when it comes specifically with like the president, the president's supporters, and racism. And my, my hunch, my guess about all of this is that, that it reflects like the sociology of journalism. Because um, the same hesitancy isn't, I don't see it among journalists of color, but among white journalists, there is a very real reluctance to take that step um, to treat a word like white supremacist as almost a slur rather than a, a term that describes a set of relations, a set of ideologies, a set of beliefs that may well apply to some swath of American voters. Here's local freelancer Porter Jordy Yeager. An important conversation to have, and one that we're having, is what does white supremacy look like? What does white privilege look like? What does white nationalism look like? Because racism is incredibly personal. Racism, at the end of the day, is an interaction between two or more people. And so we as journalists, myself especially, need to focus on what that, what that form takes. Uh, when a beer hall goes up, we like our beer halls in Charlottesville and in this area and wineries. Uh, when a beer hall goes up, is that racist? It's, it's pushing out black people in black neighborhoods and it's, it's owned by white people. I don't think that the white people think of themselves as racist, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. We look at transfers of public schools and elementary school students. There were 60 petitions to transfer elementary school students last year, about half white, half black. And if you're white, your chances of getting that approved were 98%. If you're black, your chances dropped to less than 50%. These are conversations that aren't the face of KKK and neo-Nazis or uh, you know, the, the things that were on display on August 12th. And yet, I, I think there's a, a deeper conversation to be made about whether that's white supremacy or not. 
I mean, these are not things that scream, we want you to stay here. We, this is your Charlottesville. This is part of who we are. So these are all conversations that I think as journalists, we could, it, would, it would do us a great deal of good to be in to talk about instead of using terms like white nationalism or white supremacy that may be off-putting, that may set people on edge, to talk about the details of what that actually means. Because that's where you find the truth. You'll find the relationship between individuals. And from there, you can start to actually, I think, have an honest conversation. Or you, there's the hope of having an honest conversation. The one thing I'll add is that my worry about the events of August 12th is that they essentially allow people to distance everything you talked about from, you know, from the conversation about racism. People can say, well, I'm not, I'm not Richard Spencer. So it's okay that I'm going to send my kid to a former segregation academy, right? Like, I'm not that person, so it's okay that I'm not going to interrogate why, why so many spaces in a, in a city that is uh, like pretty, has a substantial black population, so many spaces in the city are lily white. And yeah, I, I, there's, there's a degree to which the events of August 12th have both mobilized people and like lifted some scales from eyes, but also allowed people to position themselves as, you know, good white people counterpoints, bad white people, and thus, if I'm not, if I don't hate, then I'm not, I, I don't contribute to the problem of racism, when the problem of racism isn't, isn't really about hate, it's about resources, it's about power, it's about access, it's about opportunity. The panel ended with questions from the audience, including this one, answered by Bowie, staff writer at New York Times Magazine, Jenna Wortham, and Collier Meyerson of The Nation. My question is inspired by the ways in which media tends to ally two words, racial and racist. Racial is almost always preferred. Um, and it seems to me that white comfort sells newspapers but discomfort is an important part of the learning process and change. So how then can journalists push the envelopes, move the needle from euphemism to accuracy, move from the phrase racially tinged or racially motivated or race-based to the actual word racism or racist? Thank you. I mean, I think the answer to that is just journalists have to do it. I mean, it, it's... What's funny about it all is that it's not as if journalists don't recognize what's happening. So I, I mentioned the thing with Jamel Hill at ESPN, and that Friday, um, a journalist at the New York Times said something to the effect on Twitter that Trump is doing this because of the concessions he made on the Dreamers, on DACA. That is, that is, that is a recognition of, of the fact that Trump is making a racist appeal. He recognizes that his core supporters are upset that he's helping immigrants, and so he's going to go after a black woman to sort of say, no, no, I got you, don't worry. And yet, if you were just to say that out loud, people would be like, whoa, whoa, that's like, that's too much. Uh, that's not fair to his supporters. That's, we can't prove that he's racist. And I, I, for, for my part, I, I think it's just a challenge of, of being willing to recognize that Racist is not, or racism, or white supremacy, these aren't pejoratives, these aren't terms, I, this isn't trying to make people feel bad. These are descriptive words that describe actual phenomena, belief systems, and, and, and material realities. Well, but I just want to add though, I, I think this is a really great question, and I'm glad that you brought this up, because I think you can look at a correlation between diversity in a newsroom, and if you have a black editor, and a black copy editor who can look at something like housing discrimination or housing segregation or income inequality and say, you know, that's racist. Or the fact that people in Charlottesville who work at UVA can't afford to go to this university, they don't have a living wage and actively haven't been able to get it. That is racist. It's not a racialized thing, it's racist. And I think, I don't think white people are always comfortable saying, well, is that racist? Am I racist? Like, I think there's, there's a sense in which if you are a white person and you are covering this particular news cycle, you have to do a lot of self-interrogation that doesn't rely on turning to the one black person in your newsroom and being like, can we say this? It's like, no, you need to have the authority to understand what racism is. And I don't, I don't always see that. And I, I do see things like racially tinged. And I'm like, what is racially tinged about this? Like, I, I, it's, it's infuriating. And I mean, I think we're in this culture of fear of being 
wrong and fear of being, we're afraid of what we don't know. And I think if you are a white person in this country right now, you have to interrogate what it means to be white and what your identity means and whose identity is often sacrificed for your identity to be considered supreme. And I think that there's a real, like a real lack of, of willingness to do that self-interrogation. And that's why we have that kind of language in a lot of newspapers across the board. I will also add, I, in the piece that I wrote for CJR, I, I gave um, an example. And it was, if you're a reporter and you are tasked with a local reporter and you're tasked with writing about a fireman that got a cat out of a tree, the first question is, where is that cat in the community? Is the community all white? Why is the community all white? Are there cats taken out of the tree, saved in the black part of this community? Um, how many cats are saved annually? Who are the firemen? Who are the cats? Where are the cats and where are the firemen? And like looking at that holistically in every single story that you write. We've been listening to excerpts from a recording of a panel of journalists organized by the Columbia Journalism Review on September 18th at The Haven in Charlottesville. For a full recording of that panel, visit withgoodreasonradio.org. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our production assistant is Georgiana Reed. Our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>